following is a sermon from Park Church in Denver, Colorado. More information and resources can be found online at parkchurch.org. Our scripture reading this morning is from Psalm 133. If you don't have a Bible with you this morning, there should be one in the pew back in front of you. You'll find today's reading on page 487. If you don't own a Bible, please take one home as a gift from Park Church. Again, we're reading from Psalm 133. A song of ascents of David. Behold, how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. It is like the precious oil on the head, running down on the beard, on the beard of Aaron, running down on the collar of his robes. It is like the dew of Hermon, which falls on the mountains of Zion. For there the Lord has commanded the blessing, life forevermore. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Deanna. Good morning. Uh, we're in a, a psalm that has been kind of stirring me up a lot uh, over the past week. Uh, things that are still kind of like on my mind and kind of God's doing in my heart. Uh, stuff I have to pay attention to and I'm kind of in the middle of processing right now. I just feel my own weakness around a psalm like this, a really beautiful celebration of unity. I feel my own stuff kind of coming to my attention before God. And, and so I just want to acknowledge we need his presence. We need his spirit uh, to work in all of us this morning. So let's take a minute and ask him to work among us. And Jesus, we right now uh, just want to say thank you for your grace towards us, your patience with us, your steadfast love, and your faithfulness. The fact that we get to gather on a morning like today with all the different journeys that have brought us into, into this space, that we get to gather we get to know that you have a love for us, that you have grace towards us, that your mercies are new every morning. That we to gather as your children, as a part of your family, um, is just a testament to your grace and to your mercy. And I pray that that grace and that mercy would be transforming our hearts to be the kind of people that show that to others. I feel my own need for it. I feel the need for us as a church family to grow in grace. Feel the need for your people across the world to grow in it. And our hope is that you would transform us to be people that put your grace, your love on display in all the ways you've called us to in this world. And so we need your spirit even here and now. We thank you for the students that are a part of this community, for what they're going to be doing this next week. Would you part your spirit on them, that it be transformative and sweet, that community and friendship would be built, but also that you'd grow them in their knowledge of your love in Christ that you transform them as faithful followers of you, Jesus, that you give them resilient, sweet, deep, authentic faith in you and a deep relationship with you. Would you pour out your spirit on that time and protect them and watch over them all, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Uh, Psalm 133 is an unqualified celebration of the unity of God's people. It's just a, a straight-up celebration like the people of God would gather together and sing Psalm 133, and it's just celebrating unity. And if you're anything like me, when we think about the idea of unity, there is surely something that's like, yeah, this is pleasant, this is exciting, we could talk about this, we could sing a song about this, we could cheer about this, but when we think about our real life, an unqualified celebration of unity is sure to be met with some kind of inner dissonance when we think about our own experience. 
Our own experience maybe with extended family, with friends, with people within the church, with society at large. And so to kind of come up against a a psalm like 133 where it just celebrates, again, unqualified celebration of the unity of God's people and then have in your own experience a lot of tension in your own life, areas where you feel divisions of various fashions and kinds and degrees. It's an an emotionally complex space to be in. And I've felt that all week. All week as I've looked at Psalm 133, I've been inspired, I've been encouraged, I've been challenged, but I've also kind of stirred up a lot of things I've had to think about. I've been convicted, I've had to think and pray about different relationships and where I'm at and what's going on in my heart and things Jesus might be inviting me into. And again, I'm just going to be honest with you, that's kind of where I am coming into the psalm. I don't feel like I embody this in any stretch of the imagination. I'm like, it's, it's working on me in ways, and my prayer is that it would work on us as a church. Probably everybody in this room, maybe not everybody, but everybody that has opinions and thoughts, uh, has at times, and, and likely even now, areas where there's disagreement, areas where there's been pain in your story and relationships, or areas where there is now pain. And so my hope today is to actually take an honest look at Psalm 133, see the, the beautiful picture, the image that it lifts up of unity, and then just talk about the, the tension that's created. Because for the psalmist, David in particular here, and for all those that have sung this song as the people of God throughout the generations and throughout the ages, There is also for them an experience of tension, division. And so how do these things fit together and what does God invite us into as we look together at Psalm 133? So that's what we're going to do. We're going to actually dive right in and take a look at the psalm, look at the beautiful vision it lifts up, talk about the tension we experience and where that comes from, and talk about a path forward that God invites us on as you think about growing over time to be a kind of people that embody this beautiful vision. And so we are, again, Psalm 133. We're going to start with what's called the superscript. The superscript is that, uh, for most of your Bible, is that little um, capitalized, all caps section right above the psalm, a song of a sense of David. That's in the Hebrew text. That's not like your English translators adding a little header. Many of your Bibles have like a, a header above that. Like for the ESV, it says, when brothers dwell in unity. That was the ESV editors giving those little bold headers to kind of help you make sense of a section. That cap section is a superscript. It was put there by those who compiled these psalms, these songs, and arranged them in the kind of bigger five books of the psalms in the Bible. And so it starts off with this line, a song of a sense of David. We'll come back to the song of a sense in a minute, but David, King David, wrote this poem as a celebration of the unity of God's people, a celebration of unity. And right out of the gate, what he says is, behold, how good and pleasant it is when brothers or brothers and sisters dwell in unity. He immediately taps into a family image to kind of describe what's happening in the people of God, but I want to kind of hone in on the family image. This idea of brothers and sisters dwelling together in unity, and in the Hebrew it's just brothers and sisters dwelling together, how good and pleasant it is when we live life together together as a people. It's an image of an extended family that's now come together. Maybe they live together kind of intergenerationally with an extended family, or maybe they've come together for a particular holiday or a gathering. But what he's saying is when a whole family, imagine grandparents, maybe even great-grandparents, grandparents, parents, and kids all gathered together in this kind of multi-generational like family that's coming together to eat food and to celebrate and to sing and dance and play games and have late-night conversations 
conversations around the fire, or early morning conversations over a cup of coffee to kind of kick back in the backyard and talk about life and to worship God together. That's the image, and we all have experienced that perfectly all the time, I'm sure. That's what extended family feels like to most of us, I'm sure. The, the, the reality is this image is an image that like the human being wants, but most of us find a lot of tension even thinking about kind of this deeply unified experience of family. I, I in my own life, have a family that I'm so grateful for. I had uh, the, the blessing of being able to be with my extended family on my wife's side for a few days, a week and a half ago, uh, in the Gulf Shores of Alabama. Do you know there are beautiful beaches in Alabama? I didn't know that. Any southeastern people? Anybody from the southeast? Wonderful beaches. It's wonderful. Colorado people are like, this is the best. And if we want to go to the beach, we go to California or Florida, Alabama, Gulf Shores. Beautiful. It was a wonderful time. And I uh, went there. It was my wife's grandparents were there, kind of a, kind of, again, extended family gathering. My wife's grandparents, uh, her dad, and all of her dad's siblings, and then all of kind of my wife and, and our generation, and then some 14 or so great grandkids all gathered together. And it was beautiful, and it was fun. There was jellyfish, and there were sharks, and it was dolphins, and beach, and sand everywhere. It was great. And, and there's areas where there's tension, old feelings, old dynamics, old conversations, history. You can feel stuff present, and you feel when you bump up against it, and you know what's worth wading into, and what do you stay away from, and you, you feel that, right? After those few days, we drove up 10 hours to the Smoky Mountains outside of Knoxville, Tennessee, to visit my family. Uh, my mom and stepdad recently moved to Knoxville, saw my family, my mom and my stepdad and my sister and my brother and all of their kids, all these 14 grandkids, three kids, 14 grandkids. It's a lot of big family already. And we were in the Smoky Mountains and it was fun and it was exciting and it was beautiful and felt tension, felt stuff in my own heart that's rising up. I'm like, this is, I've been growing, I've been becoming more mature, I'm growing as a differentiated person. It's going to be great. And then all this stuff is just at play in my heart, and I could feel it. And I drove 21 hours home from there in one go, Gary? Yes, in one go. Get it done. (laughs) One go. It's not safe. Drive safe. Take care of your family. Um, 21 hours, because my mind was racing about conversations. What should have I said? Should have I done that? Do I need to follow up there? Just stuff at play in my own heart. And so David's lifting up this image of this family dwelling together in unity, and it's, did he have any experience of disunity in his story? Well, yeah, he did. A lot. In fact, after he was anointed as king by Samuel, he was chased around, people trying to kill him, for years before he was finally enthroned as king. David's own experience of his life was full of disunity. And so you have this image of King David in some moment. Uh, maybe it's his consecration and his installment, his enthronement as king. It's like all the tribes have gathered together. And he's like, this, this is wonderful. We're all together. Nobody's trying to kill me, which is great. And, uh, and this feels good and pleasant. It's beneficial. It's good. It's desirable. But David is experiencing that on the heels of a life full of animosity and pain. And we'll talk about this later. The future of his own family is full of division and breakdown all over the place. And even though he, in this moment, can say, as the people of Israel have gathered together in Jerusalem for this time of worship, he can say, this is good. This is beautiful. I desire it. He, he's lifting up an ideal and and this taste of it. It's like, this is what your heart longs for. 
So he gives two, kind of basically two metaphors to unpack it. Two metaphors. First one's here in verse two. He's like, he says, it is like the precious oil on the head running down on the beard, on the beard of Aaron, running down on the collar of his robes. And I must say, the past, for the past 10 years, every time I've read this psalm, I can't help but think about Jason Jones. I just can't, I just can't help but think about it. And so Jason, we've got, a, we've got a craft of oil. I'm going to have you come up, and we're just going to do a, just going to pour the oil on your head, let it kind of make its way down through your beard, all over your clothes. It's going to be great. You ready? No, okay. Um, it, it's this weird image, right? Is this about beard oil? Is this about like men's grooming, you know, habits or something like that? It's a weird image. You're like, I don't understand. Like when I eat a greasy pizza, like getting it on my clothes is like, you just don't, it's just done. Once there's a spot of grease, it's just there. Um, and so what, what is, what's happening here? Um, Aaron's not just a random guy. Aaron is the first high priest of the, of the people of Israel. He's the first high priest. And so what David's doing in this moment, he's experiencing the unity of the people of God. And he's like, this is beautiful. How good and how pleasant is it when, when all the people of God come together and there's unity. And, he, and it's like he remembers a time in, in the kind of way back annals of, of Israelite history where the people of Israel had come out of slavery in Egypt and had come into the wilderness around Mount, the mountain Sinai. And around that mountain, they're given instructions to build a, a tabernacle, which is where the presence of God would be among the people. And all the people gather around in all these tents, all these tribes of people, hundreds of thousands of Israelites gathered together, and they are going to be in the presence of God. And to mediate the presence of God, they appoint a high priest, Aaron, and they give the high priest all these kind of like garments, these symbolic kind of beautiful garments that represent the presence of God, but also the, the representation of the people of Israel. And so Aaron, the high priest, has, again, these robes and this ephod, and he has a breastplate, and on the breastplate is written the 12 names of the 12 tribes of Israel. He's going to represent the people to God and God to the people, and he alone is going to go into the Holy of Holies before the presence of God to mediate on behalf of the people. And to prepare Aaron for the presence of God and for this purpose of mediation, they would anoint him with oil. And so they took this oil and they poured it over his head to symbolize the presence of God and the consecration for a specific purpose. And so it pours on his head and it goes down his beard and it goes off his beard onto his robe, onto this breastplate, symbolizing this idea of the presence of God with his people, unified by a singular representative unified around Aaron. And this image for David is as the people are gathered together in the presence of God, that presence of God in that unity is an experience of beauty, of nearness, almost like the way things are made to be. God with us, we with him, we are his people gathered together, unified around his presence. And David, when he sees generations later, the people of Israel gathering, he's like, it's like that moment it's like that moment again. We're unified in the presence of God together. This is what life is. This is beautiful. And he moves on to his second metaphor. He says this, it's like the dew of Hermon, which falls on the mountains of Zion. So in the text, it's the dew of Hermon, which goes down to the mountains of Zion. It goes down to the mountains of Zion. Hermon, uh, Mount Hermon is a mountain over 9,000 feet of elevation on the modern-day borders of Lebanon and Syria, and it is the highest mountain in the region, and it gets 60 inches of precipitation every year. 
if you're not familiar with like precipitation levels, Denver on average will get about 15 every year, about 15. This year, by the way, we're almost there at the end of June, which is wild. Did you know this month we've had over 5.2 inches of precipitation in June? And, uh, and our average in June is, a, is two something. And we just broke the all-time record in recorded history for the most precipitation in Denver ever. The previous record was 4.96 inches in 1882. Isn't that crazy? It's crazy. A lot of rain. You're like, I know. Hey, was anybody at Red Rocks on Wednesday night? At that? Did you see that? That was wild. Anybody have their car shattered? Yeah, I talked to a few people in the 9 a.m. Windshields shattered. Hail was crazy. The, this, this rainfall and, and the kind of excessive precipitation that's come even in the front range of the mountains makes its way off the mountains into Denver, into the, the rivers, the tributaries, the streams all around. In fact, in my neighborhood on Thursday, on Thursday, all that rainfall from Wednesday plus the snow melt contributed together to take this little stream that you could kind of like jump over and, uh, and it made it into this like 30 feet wide, I don't know how long it was. Uh, it keeps getting, every surface it gets bigger. If we had a 5 p.m., it'd be like, it was like 150 feet across. Um, fish stories. So anyway, but it was, it filled up all the un- underpasses. It was wild. It was wild. There are areas in my neighborhood that were just like big old ponds and friends who had their basements flooded. It was a lot of precipitation. That was precipitation that, yes, came on Denver, but those streams, it's coming from the mountains. It's making its way with snow melts and precipitation, making its way into the region. It's going to bring water for the whole front range to the eastern plains of Colorado. And that's what's being kind of the, the vision of what's happening here is that the, the precipitation that would fall in abundance on Mount Hermon would make its way down the Jordan River Valley Basin and bring flourishing life all the way as far as Mount Zion and Jerusalem, 140 miles south. 140 miles south. So what God's doing, and in the, in the kind of Old Testament history, water represented the life-giving presence of God. And the fact that so much abundance was poured out on Hermon, it would make its way all the way down and bring life to the whole region. It's like David imagines that image as an image of all the people of Israel making their way to Jerusalem from all these tribes that have been divided and scattered as they all come to Jerusalem to worship. He's like that abundance of life that exists all around has come together into this place. And when we experience unity together in the presence of God, this is what life is. And so he grounds the whole psalm and it kind of gets out of the metaphorical space and he just names it here, kind of like why it's such a blessing, why it's so beautiful. The second half of verse three, he says, for there, when the people of God are united in his presence, in his presence, the Lord has commanded the blessing. What is that blessing? Life forevermore, abundant and eternal life. Abundance and eternal life. And so it brings us to kind of the first, the the major observation of the psalm is that when God's people live in unity, it's a beautiful expression of God's life-giving presence in the world. When God's people dwell together, live together in unity, it is a beautiful expression of God's life-giving presence in the world. It's evidence that that the presence of God is among us. When there's reconciliation and love and harmony, even across differences, when there's forgiveness and grace and patience, it's evidence that the Spirit of God is among us. The presence of God is among us. And the whole image is that it also spills over. Everywhere this word blessing shows up, it's not just like, hey, you know, I've made a lot of money and have a really cool house, so I'm blessed. 
That's not blessing in the Bible. It's not blessing in the Bible. The blessing in the Bible is the presence of God that brings power to give life and to multiply life. And so God blesses Adam and Eve in the garden. He blesses them with his presence, his spirit, empowering them to give and multiply life. When he blesses the animals, he's empowering them with life that can be multiplied and manifested. When he pronounces blessing over Noah after the flood, he's declaring over him his presence and his power to to bring life and multiply life and fill the world with life. The blessing of God is life-giving presence that, that overflows And what David's celebrating in this psalm is when the people gather together in unity, the presence of God is with us, and this is the kind of thing that bubbles over to give life to the world. And the reality is, as much as this is an unqualified celebration of that unity, even David knew pain, not just in his past, but the people of God would experience it in the future. So where does that come from? Because we can celebrate it, we can sing about it, we can talk about it, But in my own heart, in my own life, in my own relationships, in my own extended family, in my relationships with friends, and even within the church, you feel the tensions. And I know that I'm not the only one. I know that this is an experience common to to humanity. So what do we do? Where's this tension come from? Second observation, we'll talk about this from from the kind of context of the psalm. This God intended unity is destroyed by satanic schemes and our sinful hearts. Satanic schemes and sinful hearts. The satanic schemes shows up all across the Bible, but it's also right there from the very beginning. In the very beginning, in the Garden of Eden, you have that experience of the life-giving presence of God with Adam and Eve created in unity, and there's this unity with God and unity with one another, and it's beautiful, and it's abundant, and it's the way things ought to be. And into that experience comes the Satan, the accuser, the deceiver. And he schemes not just to divide Adam and Eve, but first to separate them from God. First, to separate them from God, to to find their own way to establish joy, their own way to establish life, their own way to establish satisfaction, their own purpose, what they can do to exalt themselves apart from the reign of God. So humanity buys into the schemes of the Satan, the devil, the deceiver, and buy into that scheme, push away from the authority of God who's told them not to determine for themselves what's right and wrong, but to trust that God knows what's right and wrong, and to trust his authority, his way of life over their own hearts, their own thoughts their own philosophies and what they think is right. And so they push away from God's authority. They start doing things in their own way and it leads to a separation from God. In that experience of a fundamental separation from God, now division starts being experienced between one another. In that place where they are now separated from the God of love, separated from his grace, separated from his presence, separated from his power. As they're separated from that, they're forging their own sense of identity, elevating their own values, their own thoughts, their own perspectives, their own desires, their own uh, cravings at the expense of others, and it leads to pain. Adam and Eve experience division. There's pride. There's shame. There's blame shifting. Adam and Eve have kids. Cain and Abel are the first two sons born to Adam and Eve, the first brothers that did not dwell together in unity. Cain killed his brother Abel because of his jealousy, his jealousy towards Abel, longer story, but that division kind of precipitates a whole experience of division between people groups. East of Eden, apart from the presence of God, people groups divided against each other. You see that work its way all the way up to Babel, more division, and then God calls the people, Abraham, uh, through Abraham to establish his presence on earth. And Abraham has Isaac, and Isaac has two sons, Jacob and Esau. Division shot through the experience of Jacob and Esau. Deception, lying, conniving, stealing, manipulation. 
Jacob steals the blessing from his brother Esau, becomes the founder of the people of God. His name's changed to Israel. He has 12 kids. The brothers, the older, really 10, take Joseph, the 11th, and they betray him out of jealousy. They lie. They sell him into slavery. It's how the people of Israel end up in Egypt. In Egypt, after 400 years in slavery in Egypt, they're finally redeemed through the waters of the Red Sea by the blood of the Lamb. They come into the wilderness, more grumbling, more division, more pain. Then you get to the book of things like Joshua and the judges, division, pain, deception. And they're like, we need a king. We need a king. That's going to unify us. And so you have King Saul. King Saul does great for like a hot minute. And then turns his heart, decides he's going to lift himself up against everybody else. And so they're like, God's like, that's not my king. I'm going to get David. David and Saul, incredible division. And then finally, Saul's off the scene. David's enthroned as king. There's some unity. And he's like, let's write a song about it. <laughs> let's, just, let's just capture this moment. Let's capture this moment. This is great. There's unity. Nobody's trying to kill me. We're all together. Good. Okay, moment's done. Now David's kids are betraying one another. Absalom betrays David, kicks David out of his own kingdom. There's a scene in the Psalms where David sings about fleeing out of Jerusalem, like barefooted and weeping. He's been betrayed by his own son. His sons divide. Absalom eventually dies. Solomon takes the throne. It's good for a second. Solomon's kids divide the kingdom. There's a civil war. It's divided into the northern tribes, called the kingdom of Israel, and the southern tribes, the kingdom of Judah. That division stands for centuries and generations, pain, animosity. And Psalm 133 just sits there in the Hebrew Bible, you know, as this like testimony to what it could be in a world where it's not what it's like. It's not what it's like. And, and that tension, that, that pain exists. And we can talk about it in the history of Israel, but when we start getting like honest, it's easy to talk about it in, in my own history and in your history. We, f we feel it. All across the Bible, there's this evidence that, that disunity continues to be empowered by spiritual opposition and our own sinfulness. Spiritual opposition and our own sinfulness. There's uh, a number of passages. I think of this one from 2 Timothy chapter 2. The Apostle Paul is writing to Timothy right before Paul's death. He knows he's about to die. He's about to be executed because of his faithfulness to the gospel. And so he writes to Timothy, his young apprentice, and he says this. He says, so flee youthful passions. And I want you to hear that word, youthful passions, um, because we are, uh, broadly speaking, a youthful church. And it's good to know that there are youthful passions that are immature. And I'm not saying you're immature. I'm saying we have a lot of immaturity among us in our youthfulness, things we still have to learn things that God still needs to grow up within us. Some of that takes time. So Paul says, Timothy, young man, flee those youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. Have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. You know that they breed quarrels, and the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth. Notice that unity and quarrelsome are here, and unity is not a truthless unity. 
It's a, it's a gentleness and a humility and a kindness even around disagreements, even around things that need to be talked about and addressed. A gentleness and a kindness. It says, God may perhaps grant them repentance leading to a knowledge of the truth. And listen to this, verse 26, 2 Timothy 2. And they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. He's pulling together your own sinful passions, our own sinful hearts, and the schemes and the snares of the evil one who wants to capture people to lead to division that tarnishes the reputation of Christ in the world. They're both at play. Both at play. Paul talks about similar issues in 2 Corinthians chapter 2 in a place where there's been relational pain. Somebody had sinned against Paul. The people of Corinth are learning to forgive that person. Paul's forgiving that person. He says this, 2 Corinthians 2, 10 and 11. Anyone whom you forgive, I also forgive. Indeed, what I have forgiven, if I've forgiven anything, has been for your sake in the presence of Christ, so that we would not be outwitted by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his designs. His, Satan's, designs. We don't want to be outwitted. We don't want to be ignorant. There's a spiritual opponent that wants to destroy and divide. And what he plays to is our own pride and our own heart, our own desire. I want to be more right. I want to prove that I was in the right space and you were in the wrong space. And I want to hang on to the offense that, that I felt from you. And I want to make sure that I, I feel in the moral high ground or the intellectual high ground or the theological high ground in this. And we lift ourselves up and protect ourselves and keep people at, at bay or just kind of not interested in the uncomfortable conversation that might be required to pursue unity, and so we avoid it. And in that space of that, that sin, that satanic scheming, divisions creep in and they pollute and destroy the beauty and the goodness of what God wants to do, and we all feel that. We all feel that. I certainly do. I certainly do. And so in our longing for unity and in the world's longing for unity, we try to create a kind of counterfeit unity. Most fundamentally, we'll see this, that true unity is, is broken by our, our rebellion against God, the sin in our own hearts. And as much as we try to create our own kinds of unity until we can experience the transforming power of the gospel of Jesus, all the kinds of unity we can achieve, which there are kinds that have meaning and value, all the kinds of unity we can achieve are fundamentally incomplete. Incomplete, if not totally counterfeit. And so in society, you have things like this. Unity without truth. This is like unity without conviction. Like in our society, this is really, really popular. Unity that we're looking for is a unity where you agree with and affirm everybody. Everything everybody's doing is good and fine, and I'm comfortable with it. Everybody's desires, they get to, they get to choose for themselves what they want to do and what they're like, and we just support everybody. And that kind of unity isn't truly unity. It's we accept and welcome and include everybody who accepts and welcomes and includes everybody. We are exclusively for inclusivists. And, uh, and if, if you don't include everybody the way we want you to include anybody, then you are severely excluded, right? And it makes me think about a kind of unity without conviction. We talk about the idea of conviction and compassion. It's okay to have conviction. If there's also humility and compassion and love, it's okay. But it makes me think about that famous song by John Lennon played for a band called The Beatles. Anybody ever heard of The Beatles? Uh, those younger ones among you? Maybe not. Anyway, you'll know this one. It's called Imagine, which always feels catchy and sounds good. And then you listen to it, you're like, That's a, there's a whole philosophy there. Um, and so here's what it says. Imagine there's no heaven. It's easy if you try. 
No hell below us, above us, only sky. Imagine all the people living for today. Imagine there's no countries. It isn't hard to do. Nothing to kill or die for and no religion too. Imagine all the peoples living life in peace. You may say, I'm a dreamer, but I'm not the only one. I hope someday you'll join us and the world will be as one. Last verse says, imagine no possessions. I wonder if you can. No need for greed or hunger. A brotherhood of man. Imagine all the people sharing all the world. You may say I'm a dreamer, but I'm not the only one. I hope someday you'll join us and the world will be as one. It's a beautiful song, musically brilliant, can stick in your mind forever. The philosophy there is like, if we don't believe anything or desire anything, if we don't have anything, we don't mark anything, and we're all just good, it'll be great. It'll be great. But we live in a world where there are differences. You live in a world where there are possessions. There are societies. There are ethnicities. There are experiences. There are boundaries. And, and there are ways to honor those differences and still experience unity without absolving them all. And so the world's looking for a unity without truth. The world also looks for kind of a unity without justice. A unity without justice. This is a kind of keep the peace unity. Don't rock the boat. Don't mess up the waters. Like, let's avoid conflict. For the Enneagrams 9 among you, this is like the dark side of your, your life. And, and they're kind of like, let's, and I feel it in my own heart. I feel it in my own heart. It's like, man, I, I just want to, everything just to kind of be okay. Okay for who? Okay for me? If it's okay for me and it's okay for you, are we paying attention for the people for whom it's not okay? Dr. King famously said, kind of true peace isn't the absence of tension. It's the presence of justice. It's the presence of justice. There are things that need to be challenged. There are things that need to be spoken up against. There are things that need to be confronted. There are hard conversations in your own relationships that you ought to have. And avoiding those isn't biblical unity. Maybe cowardice, maybe fear, maybe just a longing for comfort, a general disposition, kind of like away from hard stuff. And I resonate with that. I've created more pain in my life by avoiding hard conversations. I've created pain in our church by avoiding hard conversations. This is real. It's my own sin and the junk in my own heart. And I imagine many of you are the same. We'd let these things kind of fester. It's kind of unity without justice. And the last one would be unity without depth. Unity without depth. Unity without depth would be um, the kind of unity where it's like everything feels good, but we know there are just certain things we can't talk about. And we just kind of agree to not go deep, right? I was at the Denver Nuggets parade, uh, me and three of my kids, uh, not last week, the week before. It's a fun time. We were at 17th and Market, seeing everybody go by, cheering, yelling. Everybody was fun. Everybody was, there was joy. There was, I mean, everybody was kind of like, pumped and plastered at the same time. And, uh, and then like hundreds of thousands of people made their way into this one little area, Civic Center Park downtown. And it's like fun, celebration, laughing, joyful. And as everybody got more, and I've got my three kids here and, and people are just pushing and fighting. I was just like, I'm about to go to blows with people. I'm just like, get away from my kids, like stay back. I'm like, my mind's reeling. And I'm just about to fight. I'm like, okay. You know, Lord Jesus, you know, and we left quickly because it was just not a good situation. I was, it was not wonderful because as much as we were all united around a love for the nuggets, it's not like there's these transformed human hearts that were deferential and giving room for everybody else. And no, why don't you go ahead? And I'd rather you have a great view. Oh, are those your kids? Let me clear out a little space so they can see the stage. There's none of that business. And my guess is 
if you would have taken like any other topic besides our, our kind of like love for the nuggets and put it into the space, it would have created chaos and wars and fighting and strife. So we can unite on this level, but there are so many levels we weren't united. We weren't united. And so it was shallow. And my guess is for a lot of us, even with extended families, there's that kind of experience. We know, right? We've learned over the years. We've learned. There are things we can talk about, and there are things that if we want to have a relationship with one another that we probably can't touch. And so it feels kind of shallow. It feels kind of shallow. Is that what David's celebrating in Psalm 133? No. He's celebrating something so much deeper, so much richer. So what's the path forward? What's the path forward? There is no true unity when we don't deal with the fundamental issue. The fundamental issue is our sinful hearts, our separation from God, the insecurities we carry around with us as we try to navigate through life apart from his presence and apart from his love, which is actually here in the psalm. I said we'd come back to this phrase, a song of ascents. David's psalm, written around probably in the 1000 BC area, was later collected and gathered into a collection called the Songs of Ascent, which became a songbook for the people of Israel as they would three times a year take pilgrimage feasts back to Jerusalem to the temple. And they would sing this, and like, we want this one in our songbook when we're making our way back into the presence of God. And as they're coming back to the presence of God, it's not just for like a general holiday or celebration. They're coming back to honor God, to offer sacrifices, and to remember his mercy and grace towards them. And there's something about the presence of God and his mercy and grace towards humanity that begins to heal the human heart. Begins to heal the human heart. And even here where it shows up in book five of the Psalms, the psalmists knew that even the kind of kingdom experience of David was a foretaste of some place where this whole story is headed. They're longing for a better kind of king. They're longing for a better kind of kingdom. And so they'd sing this in anticipation. When's that new king going to come? And in the person of Jesus, the king did come, and he came, and he showed love and humility and service and grace, and he started inviting around himself people from all kinds of backgrounds. He invited around himself people from the northern tribes, and from the southern tribes. And he invited Samaritans to come to him. He invited people that were the religious elite, and he invited the people that were seen as morally compromised to come and experience his love and his grace. He invited the Roman oppressors and the Jewish oppressed to come and experience his loving, healing grace. He invited the the tax collector who had saddled up with Rome to make money off of their oppression, and he invited the zealot who wanted to kill the tax collectors and the Romans into his little inner community, his small group of friends, to experience in him his healing, love, and grace, and mercy. And then when they're all following him and fumbling their way forward with their own sinful hearts, they watched him give his own life on a cross to atone for the fundamental error, our own sinful, broken hearts that are determined to live life on our own terms, our own way, protect ourselves, exalt ourselves, defend ourselves. And he laid down his life to bring forgiveness and mercy and grace. And it's in the presence of Jesus that we begin to have an experience of a healed heart. So the last observation of this passage is the only path to true unity is the work of Jesus and the way of Jesus. It's the work of Jesus and the way of Jesus. I think it was Charles Spurgeon who famously said, the ground is level at the feet of the cross. When you begin to realize how broken, how sinful, 
how messed up my own thoughts and my values are, how wrong I've been in so many ways, it begins to have this humbling effect where you begin over time to see more and more of the stuff that you bring into relationships. I will tell you on my drive home and over this past week, it's been a humbling realization yet again. It's not the first time I've realized this, but it's getting deeper and deeper to know that a fundamental issue at the center of the, of the tension I feel with my family, maybe the central issue, is me. It's my own pride. It's my history of pride. It's my history throughout, as I think about the way my pride, my self-protective, my insecurities have worked themselves out over years on my brother, on my sister, on my family. It's humbling. What I want to think about is what they said and where they're wrong and how could I say this better and how could I prove that I didn't mean that and how do I... And what God just keeps saying is like, hey, there's a big old log in your eye and you need to focus there. And I love you. I love you. And the fact that he loves me, when I think about my history of relationships within the church, just stuff, new stuff's coming up to my heart this week, stuff that I'm still sorting through, processing. What God's teaching me right now is because of his sacrifice on the cross, because of his atoning love, he welcomes me into his presence and I can begin to explore my own sin, my own brokenness. And what it begins to create is, is moments of tasting humility. Not, not, I say moments, because then I just circle back to like, yeah, but well, what, do I, what if they, all those things, they're all in me, it's a journey. But when we come to the work of Jesus, it begins to change the human heart to experience humility, maybe to experience grace. The amount of times I've had to ask for forgiveness for people is incalculable. But the more I've had to do that and the more people have offered me grace, the more I get excited about giving grace to others. Because it's such a gift when people forgive me for all the junk in my heart, such a gift that God has shown grace to me, that it makes me, the more I taste that, which I taste as I acknowledge my own sin before his magnificent, beautiful mercy that is new every morning, it is slowly teaching me to be excited to show grace to people, even where I've been wrong, even where you've been wronged. And I know there's, compl- there's trauma There are traumatic things that have happened. I'm not trying to wade into the deepest, darkest stuff. There's sensitive things to evaluate. There are certainly moments where people have done harm to you that has nothing to do with you, is entirely evil in their heart and actions they have done. And and there is a reality there. Many have experienced that kind of trauma. And I want to be like, I want to honor that. In, in much of our relational tension, though, it is, there's mutuality, and the path forward is not to prove what somebody else did and to convince them you were right and wait till they finally own their stuff. It's to say, what's the log in my eye? This is the way of Jesus. He said, if you find that there's an offense and you want to go address the thing in your other friend, your brother or sister that's wronged you, first stop that. There's a big old log in your eye. Take that out. And when you're done taking that out, you have a little more clarity that if you feel there's still a need to address that speck in your brother or sister's eye, then your heart's in a different space to do it. This is the way of Jesus, and he taught taught us this way. He called us to this. And if we learn to follow his way, and we come to him again and again and again in contexts like this to remember his love for us, his grace towards us, his sacrificial death on the cross to pay the penalty for our sins, to bring us into the family of God without merit, without superiority, with our own sin and brokenness and pain, when we do that, he changes us. And when we experience that, we grow over time to become people who can offer love who can disagree with compassion and humility, who can step into hard conversations and say, I, wonder, I bet there's stuff for me to learn here. I have no sense that I figured it all out. How could I? I'm just like a guy fumbling my way through life. Like, 
I bet there's something for me to learn. I bet there's more I don't see. I imagine the rabbit hole of the sin in my own heart is deeper than I yet even can fathom. And I'm willing to explore it because God loves me. That's wild. And when you do, you can step into those spaces with increasing gentleness. I am a baby on this journey, but we get to do it together. We get to be on the journey together. So will we mess up? Certainly. Are there probably broken relationships in your own life and in your own history in the church or in your small group, even in our own community? No question about it. Can we learn together to come to Jesus, to consider what he's done for us, and to learn how to follow his way over time? to become the kind of people that can experience his presence and his power and then offer that to the city around us. Offer that kind of spiritual power of a community that's learned to love one another. This is what Jesus prayed for his people, that we'd be one just like he and the Father are one. It's what he said. It's how they're going to know you're my disciples by the love you have for one another. And our prayer is that over time, over time, we'd be able to do this. And we can do it with hope because this is where the whole world's headed. In the resurrection of Jesus, he began to show that he has the power to reconcile and to redeem and restore everything. That's where it's all headed. It's a journey that is humbling, but it's beautiful. And we get to be on it together. May God help us to be on that journey. And may his glory shine through the reconciliation, the unity, and the love that he cultivates in our community. Let's pray. Jesus, we need you even now. I need you even now. I just feel how long, how far I have to go. So we thank you for your patience. We thank you for your Holy Spirit, the way you convict us. We thank you for your word, things like Psalm 133 that show us a a different way. And we, Jesus, we we thank you for your, your death and your resurrection. We thank you for the hope that we have. Would your spirit, even right now, begin to work in our hearts? Where things you need to change in our hearts, would you help us to be open to that? Where there are actions we need to take, steps we need to take towards relationships, would you help us have wisdom in that? And would you pour out your spirit, protect us from the evil one who wants to divide, who wants to get us spiraling in angst and anxiety and fear and anger and bitterness. Would you protect us against his schemes by the power of the spirit? I just give you thanks that we don't have to be afraid that you'll give up on us, that you'll stop being patient with us. Your mercies will run out on us. We don't have to. We don't have to be afraid because of Jesus, because of what you've done. And so we give thanks to you, Christ, for your steadfast love. It's better than life. Help us to praise you for it. In Christ's name, amen. Hey, thanks for listening. Park Church exists to make disciples of Jesus for the glory of God and the joy of all people. More information and more resources can be found online at parkchurch.org. Take care.